We start with sombre news yet again this week, unfortunately, this time with the sudden passing of Dean Jones at the age of just 59. Jones was an incredibly popular batsman who had a very storied career. 52 test matches at an average of 46, 164 ODIs with an average of 44.6. I mean, where do you start? I mean, for me, he was always this free-flowing, swashbuckling batsman with a massive smile. I mean... I didn't really understand the world of cricket in the 80s when I first started watching it. I mean, I, I enjoyed watching him bat because I knew that he was he was good. You could tell at a young age for myself that he was a good player. But I just I liked the way he went about his cricket and the way that he went about his commentating as well. Honestly, the most tragic part of this for me is it's twofold. Firstly, him not being at home with loved ones, mm. you know, being away, your heart bleeds. For oh him. yeah, yeah. And secondly, poor Brett Lee as well, being the man on the scene and heroically resuscitating him twice before he yeah. passed away. But yeah, that would have been, and then having to go on air to broadcast the IPL match because that's what Dino was over there for. Yeah. So I yeah, just, that would have been really tough. Yeah, I just hope that people are around being a now because they need to be. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, you know, I kind of, like, everyone knows that story about the, the Kurt Lee Ambrose incident <laughs> where he made him take off his wristbands, and we all know how it ended, obviously, a blistering spell from Ambrose and five for 32, but I saw a really cool story today about a sledge he delivered to, of all people, Shane Warne, that kind of sums up who he was as a person. So at the start of his career against India and Sri Lanka, Warne, he was, he was struggling, to say the least. He was getting tonked all over the place, and... When Pramodia Wickerama Singer hit one to Dean Jones for Warren's second wicket, he came into the huddle, looked at Warren and said, well done, champ. You now average 435 runs per <laughs> wicket. Well done. Oh, uh, yes. Great so. sense of humor. I actually I actually had him on Twitter, at Professor Dino. And so it's it's really weird because, you know, he would tweet pretty much every day or very, very regularly. So I'd see his thoughts nearly every day on Twitter as such as the medium. So it's a real, it's it's going to be really weird. It's a real shock. I was at the pub on Thursday night when it happened. The sound was off and they were showing an old ODI between Australia and Sri Lanka. And then straight afterwards, they were showing an interview with Dino. And I'm like, oh, Dino, cool. And I had no idea at that stage that's why they were showing the interview. And again, as I say, the sound was off. There was nothing scrolling along the bottom or anything like that. And then I get home, uh, I look at, at, at Twitter, funnily enough, and find out that he'd passed away. It's just devastating. He, only 59 I guess the silver lining is he was kind of doing what he loved because he was commentating. But as you say, that doesn't outweigh the fact he was away from his, his family and, and his loved ones. Just adds to a shit year in sport. Yeah, for, for and, and I, he was actually my favourite batsman as a kid. Now, as a kid, I actually preferred the bowlers. So Warney was my favourite, but Dino was my favourite batsman. And I actually kind of, I didn't appreciate Tubbs as a kid. So I actually wanted Tubbs to get out so Dino would come in earlier. <laughs> Uh, so I could see more of him play. But you talked about the Kirtley story. The other one, of course, is in India. His high score of 216, which is a record for an Australian in India, under all sorts of... He had trouble at both ends. Mm. He had the, uh, you know, the Indian... 400 degrees as The well, Indian so. curse. So just an incredible knock. Just really sadly missed. Yeah, he, he will be missed. This week on the Sportplex. On this week's show, the Lakers and Heater in the NBA Finals, a case of mistaken identity in South Australia, a massive week in tennis, and our recap of the AFL home and away season. A massive week indeed. Let's go. (laughs) 
All right, Stewie, as we do every week, what caught your attention and what did you miss? Well, what caught my attention this week was actually how refreshing it was to have a week off the footy. <laughs> I've, I found last week it was actually quite tough finding the time to watch all of the games. and I was acutely aware of how nice it was to have a little bit of free time this weekend. So, I mean, having said that, I'll be glad to have it back this weekend. And I know in a few weeks' time, I'm going to hate the fact that it's not there, but <laughs> it was kind of nice. How about yourself, Nate? Well, a couple of things, and I, I often have a couple of things. First off, we watched High Flying Bird on Netflix last night, which is a Steven Soderbergh movie, and he's made Sex Lies and Videotape, Magic Mike, if you're into that kind of thing. Nope. Um, uh, but he's made, he's, made, he's made this film about a, the lockout in the NBA. So it's, it's a narrative, so it's fiction. But it's an interesting kind of story about an agent and a player, and he's kind of in that limbo because he's been drafted, but he hasn't been signed during a lockout. So what are his rights? What can he do? How can he kind of disturb the status quo? A lot of things Kyrie Irving and Dwight Howard were talking about during the bubble. And that, so that's on Netflix, yeah? That's on Netflix, yeah. Okay, Check it out. And uh, there's, there's a book they refer to. Sorry, I didn't take note of the title, but I'm definitely very interested in reading that now as a result. Look, it's not spectacular. I have a feeling it might have been rushed because of the timing, because the timing seems a little too good. Yeah. So it could do with a bit of tightening, but it's worth watching. And it's got interviews with Carl Anthony Towns, Reggie Jackson, and Donovan Mitchell, where they talk okay. about their life as rookies. It's kind of interspersed between scenes every now and then. Yeah, nice. So definitely worth a look. And yeah. if you're a fan, and if you're a real big fan, I think it's it's particularly worth a look because the politics of lockouts. Is I it? reckon I'd qualify. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then the other one, uh, and, and I'll do this quickly, but I saw it popped up on my Twitter feed, this great marketing campaign. So Stevenage or Stevenage, I don't even know how to say it, but they're in the League Two, which is the, the fourth division of the League Two in English soccer. <laughs> but they've gone viral because they've got uh, Burger King on their shirts and, and there's been this uh, hashtag, I saw it pop up on my Twitter, the Stevenage or Stevenage Challenge, where people basically play FIFA with this team. And then, I don't know, screen cap it or put it on uh, YouTube or whatever. And then it's it's really raising the profile of, of this club. So it's quite a clever little uh, clever little thing. They'll yeah. probably be bought out by some rich Emirati now who'll turn him into the next Man City. Yeah, well, exactly. Like that, yeah, so. exactly. Uh, and by the way, my girlfriend and I did the uh, Big Mac, Big Jack challenge on the weekend. Cut the Big Mac in half, cut the Big Jack in half and had half each. I still can't believe how Hungry Jacks get away with I that. I didn't even know that was a thing. Hungry Jacks have bought out the Big Jack. Yeah, I saw that, but yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know there was a challenge. Oh, well, we just decided to do it, you know. Oh, so, so for the record, uh, Mac is sauce better, Hungry Jack's burger better. Hmm. Uh, Patty. There you go. Okay. Yeah. What'd you, what'd you miss, mate? Well, I was at a, a fourth birthday party on Saturday morning, so I only got to see the first half of Game 5 of the Heat and the Celtics, so I missed a little bit of what we're going to talk about fairly soon, but... You know, I've, I've had a bit of a chance to rewatch it, so it would, it would have been nice to see it live. Unfortunately, I just didn't get to. So, how about yourself? What'd you miss? Uh, unfortunately, I missed the uh, Southern Stars. I caught a little bit of the second one around when Healy and Lanning got out, but uh, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more yeah. of that. Unfortunately, but it was a big week for me watching sports, so I did catch up on a lot, and I've watched nearly all of the conference finals, both sides now. Nice. So it was good. Well played. Well, actually, before we get into the news roundup this week, we want to do something a little bit different. It's a new segment that will probably appear from time to time. It just depends, I guess, on when it's relevant. But Reverse jinx. Yeah, we want to take some time to mention some guys who really took their cue from us to pick up their game. Yes, they've been listening, clearly. So we've got three of them this week. We've got a couple of cricketers and a guy in the NBA. So we'll start off with Jeremy Grant from the Denver Nuggets. So I heaped it on him last week as part of a pretty poor Denver Nuggets supporting cast. 
Well, right on cue. Yep. Grant stood up 26 points on 7 of 11 shooting, 10 of 12 from the line. And I'll point out, he still had a plus-minus of negative 8, only 3 rebounds, <laughs> which was less than Jamal Murray. So it was it was a great bounce back in terms of the scoring, but he's, you know, still let us down a little bit there. <laughs> but no, he had 17 points in Game 5 and then 20 and 9 in Game 6. So he, he did very, very yeah, well. Yeah, right on cue. The second guy we've got to give some props to, Steve Smith. Yes, indeed. I mentioned that maybe he could have considered not playing in the IPL. And, of course, his first outing was a swashbuckling 69 69, for the Rajasthan Royals, uh, followed by a 27-ball 50 against the Kings 11 Punjab as well. So he's had a very, very good start. Yeah, apparently not a T20 player. Well, There goes that idea. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But that was an incredible game, though. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. We will, we will. And then the third guy is one that we've both openly rubbished. Mr. Joss Butler. Again, though, I've got to clarify. It's all about his glove work in tests. Yeah, as, as a short-form player, he's magnificent. But that kind of gave us the idea as well, because he was the first to kind of go right on cue after we rubbished him months ago. But I guess. then he's gone the opposite way. So we both actually started off by saying he wasn't the right guy to keep for England, struggling with the bat. And they went on this massive tear, and we both changed our tune a little bit and said, oh, well, maybe he's the right guy. And right on cue... One off four, three off seven, and eight off 20 without a single boundary in the three-match ODI series against Australia. Mm. So, right on. Jeez, I didn't realise. I thought he had at least one knock in the three. No. There you go. Not a single boundary in three matches. Oh, well. So, we had two reverse jinxes and one jinx. Mm Mm-hmm. There you go. Right on cue. Right on cue. To kick off the news roundup, Stewie, some good news for the Matildas. Yeah, really nice good news story to start this off. So in a, a backflip similar to the ones that Sammy Kerr nails every time she scores a goal. Oh, I like what you did there. The FFA have changed their tune from last week. So we spoke last week about how they delivered these beautiful home and away kits, but they weren't available in women's sizes. Mm. They've actually stated that a batch of the Matilda away jerseys will be available early next year for the for the ladies, which is fantastic. Two bloody right. Absolutely, well. absolutely. Brazilian big wave surfer Maya Gabira broke the record for the largest wave surfed by a woman and the largest wave surfed male or female for 2020 with a 73.5 foot or 22.4 metre monster at Nazra in Portugal. Amazingly, at the same beach that she nearly drowned at seven years ago. She took a nasty wipeout, stopped breathing and after being revived was rushed to hospital with a broken leg. She had multiple operations on her spine, but what an utterly brilliant achievement. That is phenomenal. I've actually seen the wave that she took and... It's scary watching it on a computer, oh, it's, it is. let alone being yeah. in there being spat out by it. She'll certainly have no shortage of suitors in the sponsorship deals too, I suggest. I would say so. We move on to the cycling world now, where American Chloe Digert was defending her championship in the women's individual time trial at the Road World Championships in Imola in Italy. It's a place probably more well-known for the Emilia-Romagna Formula One Grand Prix, which will actually take place in November. So Digert was leading the field about halfway through the race. She caught a speed wobble going around a corner and ended up flipping over a guardrail and down into a ravine. She copped a really massive gash to her left leg. She actually hit the rail on the way over, which is Mm. probably where that's come from. Mm. Um, Had to be taken to Bologna Hospital where she's doing quite well from what I hear. But unfortunately, her event is over. It was nasty. As it would be. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. Groundhog Day in athletics. Now, we spoke about Aussie Stuart McSwain last week, and he's done it again this week, breaking the all-time Australian men's 1,500-metre record at a Diamond League meet in Doha, previously breaking Ryan Gregson's record from 10 years ago by 0.55 seconds. He now holds all of the 1,500, 3,000, and 10,000-metre national records for Australia. During the same meet, Jessica Hull managed to break the Aussie women's 3,000-metre record by improving on her personal best by a whopping 32 seconds. Wow. She now holds the 1,500, 3,000, and 5,000 national records, 
Jeez, I mean, what amazes me about these runs is like the temperatures in Doha, and we've both been there. Yes. It is ridiculously hot there. It's it hot. sure is. At the moment, I think they're hovering between about 36 and 40 during the day. And at night time, it's only 29 to 31. Oh, it was in the 50s when I was there. Yeah. Yeah. It was so nuts. doing that in those heats is ridiculous. Really interesting stat, though. The last time that two Aussies broke national records on the same day was the 29th of September 2000 during the Sydney Olympics. Ah, very nice. I thought very that was nice. pretty cool. Yeah, a lot of Olympic talk lately. Mm. And then finally, some Major League Baseball updates, Joey, heading into the playoffs. Yeah, the Miami Marlins have officially made the postseason for the first time since they won the championship in 2003. Mm. So the season after they finished a National League worst 57-105, and 105, the Marlins are miraculously second in the, in the NL East with a 31-29 and 29 record becoming just the second team in Major League Baseball history to make the playoffs a year after losing more than 100 games. Mm. So it was the 2017 Minnesota Twins with the other team. So the Marlins have been to the postseason just twice before, and guess what? They won the World Series both times. Yeah, well, a record 500, I don't know. It's unlikely. Yeah, but we'll see. <laughs> but it's still pretty Stranger cool. things have happened. Yeah. What was actually really interesting about this, though, was they sealed it at Yankee Stadium. Now, their CEO is Derek Jeter. And their manager is Don Mattingly, both of whom actually played for the Yankees. Yes, indeed. So they managed to do it on... Shave those sideburns, Mattingly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Great Simpsons reference. That's Love it. it. That's it. Um, it actually also occurred on the fourth anniversary of the passing of Jose Fernandez, a former Marlins star pitcher. So not bad at all for a team that had 18 players test positive for COVID following their season opening series in Philly. Wow. So absolutely nuts. Cool, That's a turnaround. Cool week in sport. Mm. All right, we've got another mailbag this week. Uh, this time it's from George. He doesn't actually say where he's from. So if, if ever you do write in Twitter or Gmail, you know, let us know where you're from. It's nice. nice to know. All right, fellas, time to fess up. You seem to know your stuff, but how much sport do you actually watch? Well, thanks, first, George. First, yeah, th- thanks, George, for, for that. It's a nice compliment. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a fair question, too. Look, I watch more sport than my wife would, <laughs> would like me to. I <laughs> definitely say that. I have uh, been known to, uh, to to put certain things around the house on the back burner because of a game of footy or basketball. <laughs> um, I've also been known to watch some pretty random sports in my time. I Trust me, if the Kabaddi World Cup comes up anytime soon, I will be talking about it. Of I course. Freaking love those random sports. So, <laughs> yeah, probably far too much. I'm almost glad the Olympics postponed because I may not have slept yeah that would have been tough actually that's a really good point yeah yeah yeah. Uh, for me well uh, I'm lucky my girlfriend likes watching the footy so I get to watch a lot of it with her Uh, speaking of the footy so when that started and when that was the only sport on I tried to watch I watched most games every round Mm. as other sports have come back I tend to on average watch probably four or five games of AFL footy and then maybe a couple of bits here and there parts of other games uh, I, I, in the first round of the playoffs, I watched at least one game from every series. As I said, I've nearly caught up on the entire conference finals and I plan on watching all of them. So for me, on average, I watch at least an hour a day and then I listen to at least an hour of sports media because I'm also interested in the talking heads and the media and I'm interested in the whole package. So, you know, I, I bring up PTI every now and then. I enjoy my podcasts here and there as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I watch I watch a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, I do focus on the sports I like, footy, basketball, cricket, and NFL. But, you know, I watch a little bit of the French Open. I watched a bit of the Tour de France. So, you know, I try and watch a little bit of other stuff here and there as well. You've got to diversify as much as you can. Indeed. I am, I guess, lucky being nocturnal. So a lot of my watching happens between uh, 11.30 and 2 o'clock. Yeah, when I finally put the cue in the rack. So for people who don't know, Nathan's actually an owl? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Mm. Woo! 
If you have a question for the sport blokes, email them sportblokes at gmail.com or find them on Twitter at sportblokes. Please also like, rate and subscribe. Tell your friends. So, football coach Joey, now obviously we didn't spend a hell of a lot of time on AFL last week knowing that we had a buy round before the finals and we'll really get our teeth sunk into the AFL. We'll spend a good amount of time on that. But a few other things prior to that. So in the rugby, again, we'll push that one back a little bit as well. So we'll give that a bit more time next week as well after the week one of their finals. And look, we admit, we're not big rugby fans compared to some other stuff. But there are a couple of lopsided games this week. So the South Sydney Rabbitohs defeated the Sydney Roosters by 52, and the Panthers beat the Bulldogs 42-0. Now, it's not a huge surprise, of course, for Penrith, who finished the season 18-1 and with one draw. But South Sydney's win was an upset of sorts, winning two less games than the Roosters across the season. Both teams are in the finals. Yeah, look, we swear we'll give a bit more time to, to rugby as they get into the finals. A couple of things, though, that, that did actually kind of catch my attention that I could have probably used there before. Did you see Darius Boyd doing a gender reveal after the loss in the last game? <laughs> I didn't hear, I didn't see it, but I did hear about it. It's it's caught me a lot of flack on social media. I'm on the fence about it a little bit. No, I, mean, I think like, they're stupid gender reveals. Yeah, like it's not amazing seeing guys smiling and joking after losing a game. And I'm sure the fans absolutely hate seeing it, but... They've had a long, shitty season, devoid of a lot of joy. So maybe it's not a bad thing. But, I mean, yeah, these gender reveals are just getting a bit yeah. weird. Um, certainly not something I would have done. But no, no. No. It's bad enough having the kids, let alone <laughs> having to organise that. <laughs> and also just some horrible news about Qantas pulling their $5 million a year sponsorship of the Wallabies, as well as Cricket Australia and the soccer teams. I mean, obviously... I understand having just left the travel industry after seven years there, but the airlines are just bleeding money at the moment due to COVID restrictions. But, I mean, these ones hurt the sports a lot. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see what these... A lot less money to go around at the moment. Yep. Yep. Quick soccer news, Stuart. Yeah, a couple of things. An interesting moment in the Europa League with Tottenham Hotspur taking on Shkendia of Macedonia at the Philip II Arena in Skopje on Thursday. It was actually discovered just before the game started that the goals were actually five centimetres too short. So the goals, what? yeah, they, you're kidding. So there's a, a photo going around of Jose Mourinho actually standing underneath the upright, and he's not a huge guy, but he sort of said, oh, "I thought it actually had a growth spurt, but it turns out the goals were too short." So that, yeah, they, they needed to be changed, and, and Tottenham won the match three one. It kind of begs the question of how many clubs have probably tried cheating like this in the past. I mean, it's obviously a question we can't answer, but that's crazy. I thought that was absolutely nuts. Wow. Yeah, I didn't hear that. Such a random story. Jeez. Um, very, very quick glance over to the EPL. It's still very early days in this yes. season, so we probably won't devote too much time to it now. But very interesting to see Man City and Man United in 13th and 14th place, respectively, and Leicester City back on top of the ladder. Yes, the yeah, had a big win on the weekend yeah. here, yeah. And yeah. Uh, your mob leads doing well there. Yes, 2 and 1. Yeah. Just, just below the Europa League qualification spot at the moment after three matches so yep, yep. Keep, keep it up definitely. but we will uh yeah we'll focus on the things heading into finals which by the way going back to the mailbag question i will definitely always prioritize postseason over regular season oh, of course yeah of course yeah so nfl speaking of though i did get to watch a bit of nfl last night because it's a public holiday here in wa so i got to stay up until four forty five. Uh, told you I was nocturnal. That's about when I woke up. Yep, told you I was nocturnal. So I watched the uh, Texans and Pittsburgh Steelers game, which was a good game. Started off, it was beginning to look like it was going to be a shootout, but then it turned into a bit of a defensive struggle. Steelers now 3-0 and with Ben Roethlisberger back. Uh, Texans 0-3. Very hard to come back from 0-3 yes. in the NFL. Then after that, they jumped to a couple of other games before the 4-15 game. So 
I saw the end of the Tennessee Titans win. Stephen Goskowski, now we talked about him the other week. He had a career high at six out of six field goals, including the game winner. Ah, so he didn't miss his first four. No, so he, yeah, but Tennessee are now 3-0 and and their combined margin is just six points. So they've won three games, but the combined so is So they're just, a good team to watch And them. two of those are off Goskowski game winners, I believe. Wow. So, so that's really interesting. And then I saw the end of the horrible end of the Philadelphia Eagles and Cincinnati Bengals that ended in a rare draw in the NFL. Oh, wow. Still tied at the end of the 15 minutes of overtime Jeez. period, which makes it a draw. So it was a terrible... I didn't even know that ever happened. Probably very rare, very yeah, rare. Geez. So probably a terrible game. It was definitely a terrible overtime. So yeah, so it was good to kind of whet my appetite with the NFL and actually get to watch a little bit this week. And Groundhog Day again, you've got an interesting stat there on Ryan Fitzpatrick, mate. Yeah, not to be confused with Ryan Fitzgerald. He, <laughs> yes, actually, he actually became the first player since at least 1950. I don't know if the records go back that far potentially, but he recorded at least one win against a single opponent for six different teams. Incredible. After beating the Jacksonville Jaguars as a member of the Miami Dolphins, Cincinnati Bengals, Buffalo Bills, Tennessee Titans, Houston Texans, and New York Jets. Amazing. It really is. Yeah, he's had a bizarre career. He really has. He's a fascinating guy when all said and done. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And we had a couple of mask protocol issues. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. So we had Pete Carroll, Kyle Shanahan, Vic Fangio, Sean Payton, and John Gruden. All find $100,000 for not wearing their masks when they were meant to. And their teams are also find a quarter of a million dollars as well. Jeez. So in a year where there's not a lot of money going that's around. Big mo- that's, that's big money normally. That's big. And, and Vic Fangio's tip to get sacked really soon. So to cop a $100,000 fine not long before you get sacked, it's it's big. It's a nice little uh, shit on the carpet. Yeah, well, we'll go. see. We'll see. But his clock <laughs> management has been disgraceful. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Time for what we were waiting for, hey? Let's get what straight into the AFL. AFL. Now, a bit of news before we kind of do the uh, season in review. Yeah, well, we unfortunately have to start off with some pretty horrible stuff. Uh, Tyson Stengel and Brad Crouch of the Adelaide Crows have apparently been caught with an illicit substance on them uh, by police fairly early, I believe, this morning. Yeah, so. Mad Monday. Yeah, it's not a not a great look, unfortunately. And uh, I mean, we don't know what the substance is yet, so we can only really speculate, which is pretty dangerous yeah no we won't go there but uh yeah it's 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 pretty poor end to a very poor season for the it's a huge story potentially though in Mm. terms of what this means as well so Mm. Mm. now we've got eddie mcguire as well we've got to talk about this Uh, guy yes Yes, the hypocrite so he got sprung he went out partying at the pink flamingo on the gold coast which is absolutely within his rights oh yeah we're not going to decry that he served his quarantine he's not part of collingwood's inner circle as such but his excuse I'm going on a recon mission to see if I can help the Victorian government get back to normal by finding out what Queensland is doing. That is a joke. Why didn't he just say he was testing the lemon pepper chicken? Well, <laughs> the, the Lou, Lou Williams. Williams. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, a lot of people are commending him for standing behind his bullshit excuse, but for God's sake, just admit you were there for some drinks and move on. Yeah, yeah. Why make... You don't even need to make the excuse. Yeah. Yep. Harley Bennell COVID breach. We've quickly... Yeah, well, I guess it's it's this is an interesting one, isn't it? This is this is the footnote on his career in a sense now. Mm, so, I suppose now former Melbourne midfielder Harley Bennell, is, yeah, he got suspended for four matches and was fined fifty thousand dollars for leaving the Demons' high performance centre before visiting unapproved premises, aka going out on the piss, basically. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, look. I ask this every time, and it's not really that relevant now because unfortunately he's decided to hang up the boots today. Yes, well that's right. 
Would Maybe four, because of this. That's true, yeah. Would four games have been enough given the, the suspensions that Sydney Stack and Callum Coleman-Jones got? I mean, they got... What, yeah, it's curious, ten isn't ma- it? Ten matches yeah, themselves. Yeah, it doesn't seem proportional. Yeah, like I know he yeah. didn't get in any fights, he didn't get kicked out of anywhere, but still. Mm. So I just thought that was a bit of a curious Yeah, yeah no, that is curious. I mean, we'll never know anyway. No. I guess the final still stand, but he, he won't have to serve his four-match suspension. Mm. So obviously we'll do more in-depth transactions and signings and trade rumours as the next season draws closer. But we do have some player cults and some retirements to quickly mention. Yeah, I think you alluded to the Magic Door one last week. From one of 11 at the one Kangas. Of 11, yeah. Yep, yep. So just reading through a couple more of them, though, they actually had Jasper Pettard and Jamie McMillan from their leadership group, which I think is really, really interesting. Mm. To have two of your leadership group culled, mm. not a great look. No. Um, as well as with Magic Door, Marley Williams and Mason Wood also shown the door, which is not great. Um, Essendon have axed five, including Sean McKernan, Mitch Hibbard, and Josh Begley. So I don't know if any of those guys will get a, another go, but... That's with Hooker and Hurley disgruntled wanting to jump ship too, mm. not to mention uh, Joey Danaher. Yep. So Essendon could have a big exodus. They could. And then not a whole heap else going on. I mean, obviously a lot of the, the final sides are going to leave that until after finals, but Riley Knight from Adelaide, Cam McCarthy from Fremantle, and Wiley Buzzer from Port Adelaide, among many others delisted at the moment. It's always a tough time of the year, and you yeah. feel for these guys. Yeah, yeah, well, to, especially make a living, so. in a hard year too. Yep, yeah, definitely. Yep. But it's the business. It is, it is. Um, You've got to perform. Speaking of players on the move, it looks like Horacio Fantasia might head home to South Australia. Now, the Bombers I know are looking at Daniel Talia from the Crows, I wonder if the Crows might have a cheeky straight trade coming Yeah, well, why not? We shall see. We shall see. Indeed, indeed. Um, Before we get into the other fun stuff, which is all the All-Australian squad and the the awards and things, just a quick note on some of the retirements so far. So Will Schofield from the Eagles has hung it up. Justin Westhoff and Jack Watts from Port. Sam Jacobs from GWS. uh, Ben Reid at Collingwood. uh, Harley Bennell, who we've just spoken about. Tory Dixon, who I didn't actually realise was still on the books at the Bulldogs. (laughs) Uh, Well, I was going to say, so far, not not... Really a surprise for any of them, True. really. Is, yeah. But uh, yeah, he's he's hung up the boots. And Ricky Henderson from Hawthorne as well. So joining a, a pretty decent list of retirements from some And joining a few ones. that we mentioned last week exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah. So All-Australian team. A couple of interesting little tidbits before we actually name the team. Now, there was a squad of 40. We won't talk about everyone who missed out as far as the 18 who were unlucky. But we will talk about maybe a couple of snubs after this as well. But Geelong, Port, West Coast and the Doggies all had three selections, the most for any team. 11 clubs were represented overall. Patrick Dangerfield, who was named captain, and they tend to do this to the bloke who's received the most All-Australian nods, which is why Buddy got it that year and everyone scratched their head. But he achieved his record equaling eighth All-Australian selection. Another fantastic season for him. And former Port Adelaide captain Travis Boak was announced as the vice-captain. So I'll go through it uh, just real quickly and then we can chat. Then the backs, we had Brad Shepard from the Eagles, Harris Andrews from the Lions, Luke Ryan from Frio. Halfback, Nick Haynes from GWS, Darcy Moore from Collingwood, Darcy Byrne-Jones from Port. Centre, Jack McRae from the Doggies, Travis Boak from Port, Cameron Guthrie from Geelong. Half forward, Paddy Dangerfield from Geelong as well, Charlie Dixon from Port, Marcus Bontempelli from the Dogs. Forwards, we had Liam Ryan from the Eagles, Tom Hawkins from Geelong, Dustin Martin from Richmond. Then with the followers, we had Nick Nadanui at Ruck, Christian Petrarca and Lockie Neal from Melbourne and Brisbane, respectively. And then our interchange, Jack Steele from the Saints, Taylor Adams from Collingwood, Caleb Daniel from the Doggies and Max Gorn from Melbourne. There's a there's an elephant in the room here, isn't there? It? There is. I mean, look, for the most part, I really love the squad. I think they've all but nailed it. I mean, some of these first-timers... 
I think they have had such a great season and, and deserve it. Absolutely. It's great to see, certainly as a WA guy, it's great to see the likes of Brad Shepard and, and Luke Ryan getting the, the recognition that they deserve, as well as Liam Ryan in the forward line. Yes, indeed. Both Ryans from WA. Yep. You, you, Unrelated. Yeah, and you can obviously make a, a case for quite a lot. Look, what frustrates me, yet? you said the, the elephant in the room, the guys out that are position. out of position. Yeah. I mean, Jack McRae and Cam Guthrie deserve to be in the team, but they're not wingmen. Paddy Dangerfield and Dusty Martin deserve to be in the team, but they're not forwards. It's it's just hard because players, they move around a little bit, but there's data to show where these guys are most of the time. Mm, that's I think, right. I think I heard the stat that Cam Guthrie was on the wing for like 4%. Yeah, right. I mean, he had a spectacular season. He did. He did. Yeah, Definitely yeah that's... Yeah. Uh, the Bont is the biggest one for me. I don't think he plays a hell of a lot at half forward, does no, he? No, no. Yeah. So, look, there's a few snubs that I would mention. Braden Maynard, I think, was incredibly unlucky not to get a blazer this year. Um, I mean, who do you get rid of? That's the top Well, this question. is it. Yeah, this like, is it. All six of the guys in the back line have been outstanding. Maybe Darcy Byrne-Jones, but it's, it's tough. I think the back six is pretty set, actually. Darcy Moore was absolutely spectacular. He was superb. Season. Nick yeah. Haynes was fantastic. I mentioned him a number of times. Yeah, so, and Luke Ryan and Brad Shepard were really good in pockets as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I think, you know, Harris Andrews, Brisbane finished second on the ladder. So, no. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> The other one that the one that really pisses me off though is Sam Anagola. He absolutely should be in the team. Maybe for a, I don't know a Taylor Adams, maybe you get rid of the second ruckman. Yeah, I could handle that Gorn. for Taylor Adams. Yeah, again, yeah. some people question the Gorn selection. Again, yeah. it's tough. I mean, you could also make strong cases for Dylan Grimes in the back line. That's so many quality backmen this year. Dylan Grimes was was excellent. I think he's he's not uh, in favour because of his staging. Mm. And there was a really interesting tweet from uh, Brendan Goddard about that, actually, where he's doubled down and pretty much said that it's bloody disgraceful. Well, like, he really... It's very unusual for ex-players to go after their own like that, actually. Yeah, definitely. But, he, I mean, he's a fantastic player and he'll be very important in the finals. He will be, he will yeah. be. Maybe the only other one that I would say is a bit unlucky, Dan Butler. But, again, you would probably have to get rid of Liam Ryan for that. So... It's it's tough. I think some they, people had Tom Papley in the side. I think he was an absolute lock at the start of the season. Uh, yeah, Didn't win enough games. Wasn't no. accurate enough. I, as a Swans fan, I don't think he should have been he, in the no. team. He fell off a cliff at the end. Of the some year. people said Luke Parker as well. Again, we only won five games. He was spectacular, and he'll probably win our best and fairest. But no, probably not. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's between Ryan and Ryan and Butler, and I, I think Ryan probably did just enough. Can I talk about the funniest snub? Go for it. Mitch Duncan was included in the highlights package on the broadcast. Oh dear. Wasn't even named in the 40. Oh dear. <laughs> How's that, eh? Oh dear. The work experience kid editing yeah, the well, footage there. Yeah. Well played. Yeah, yep. Uh, further awards? Yeah. So for the Coleman, well, Tom Hawkins in the end had 42 goals, which was a 10 goal clear lead. Not only did he have the top goal scores for the season, he also led in goal assists and score involvements. And if you're interested, his 42 projects out to be a shade under 70 in a full season with normally timed quarters. So he had a very good season, the Tomahawk. Okay. Yeah, it's not, not too bad, actually. And then to round out the rest of the top five, Charlie Dixon had 32 for Port. Josh Kennedy and Jack Gunston both had 31, and Matty Taverner had 29. And as I mentioned, nearly every game he played in, he kicked a goal. So a very good season for him as well. Now, the other award to have already happened was Caleb Sarong, who was absolutely magnificent, but it must be said that he was the biggest beneficiary of the Matt Rowell injury. Yeah, well, uh, you'd say that Rowell was probably a shoe-in after, what, three games, but... 
three or four, three yeah. Or four, yeah. Yeah, four, I, I believe, yeah. Yeah, I had a look at Sarong's numbers. I mean, nearly 17 touches a game, more than four tackles a game. He looks like the sort of player that's going to go on with it. Oh, yeah, he wins the eye test too. He's he's always has a impact on the game. Yeah, uh, the Frio needs to lock him in long term. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. definitely. Honourable mentions for me, Maxi King, Noah Anderson, Will Day, and Isaac Rankin, who we uh, enjoyed watching. Yeah, I thought Noah Anderson was, was really good. The um, future's bright on the Gold Coast. It is. Yeah. It is. Yep. Unintentional pun. Mm. And then obviously, okay, Brown Lowstewie. There's a fairly clear. Yeah, it's it's got to be favorite. Will Hayward, definitely. <laughs> why, uh, why are you laughing? He'll like you to pull the vote. <laughs> no, he might get a few votes. No, but, look, yeah, look, it's it'll be surprising if anyone besides Lockie Neal. Yeah, Lockie Neal and Brisbane. You know, they've had such a good season. Yeah, I've had a look at the the expected polling, and it looks like he'll poll around about the twenty five mark, and a couple of others, I think. Christian Petrarca and Travis Boak were, I think, 21 and 18, something like that. So you never know. I mean, you sometimes... I think Boak, Boak is a smoky. Petrarca, did they win enough games? But, I mean, yeah. they were on the fringe of the finals, well, so maybe he did. Yeah, he, maybe. He was probably close to best on ground in almost all of Melbourne's wins, so I think he'll, yeah. he'll be pretty close. Yep. And the thing is, you just never know. I mean, no. look at Nat Fife. He, oh, there's been several surprises won, yeah. throughout the years. So yeah. sometimes teams that didn't win huge amounts of games can still have guys... That yeah, yeah. Up. Well, Kel won it in 94. So, you know. oh, wow, were you that bad back then? Yeah, oh yeah, Paul should, Kelly. Yeah. I was about to say, you should probably expand. Yeah, 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 sorry. People yeah, who yeah. don't know who yeah. Kelly is, but yeah. yeah. Coach of the year? Well, for me, there can only be one with one honourable mention. Kenny Hinckley, last season 11-11, and 11, didn't make the eight. This season, top of the ladder, 14-3. and three. Ken Hinckley for Port, it's got to be. With an honourable mention for J-Lo, Justin Longmuir at the Dockers. Okay. I actually had it between Justin Longmuir and Brett Ratton. Thought, yeah, oh look. I thought Rats did a great job with St Kilda. And it depends on your school of thought for selection. Yeah. yeah Brett Ratton's a very good honourable mention. I actually forgot about him and they made the finals. Yeah. So no no, that's that's a good one too. And they mm. finished fourteenth last year, so Yeah, well I mean for me, like Justin Longmuir has the Dockers believing they're good enough. They're playing a good hard style of footy. Rats took the Saints to the finals for the first time in nearly a decade. I, I go Longmuir by a nose. It was over a decade. 11 years, isn't it, I think, for the no, Saints? No, t- 2011. Oh, oh, that's right. That's yeah. what I'm thinking, 11. 2010 yeah. grand final, yeah, 2011 yeah. knocked out by Sydney in the yeah. elimination final. But, My apologies. Um, but yeah, Longmuir by a nose for me. And, and look, I, I think Kenny Hinckley's not a bad... I think all three are viable candidates. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Coach of the Year is always such a hard one to choose. It is, because it? What, it depends what your criteria yeah, is. Yeah, it's, it's not like MVP where you're looking at stats and impact on a game. It's like you could have a really rubbish team and make them half-decent or relevant. And I think for me, if it weren't for the fact that Port had risen nine spots and finished top of the ladder, it probably would have been J-Lo for me. But mm. I think it's just to go from 11th to 1st yeah. in a year where you only got a couple of home games. Granted, they got more than the Melbourne teams, but I think Kenny Hinckley, you That's know, but any of them I think would be a very deserved candidate. And a couple of fun ones to round things out. We'll start off with the goal of the year and then we'll work our way across to the mark of the uh, year. So, yes, of course. So, look, I'll give you my top five first and then maybe you can... I'll reflect. Got, yeah. yeah, sure. So, for the goal of the year first, my top five. So, Darcy McPherson from the boundary in round three. I think that was an absolute cracker of a snap. Isaac Rankin soccer in round six. He had two really good goals in that game. Yeah. Mm. Yep. On Dubu. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, no so- less. that soccer out of the pack was amazing for a first game player. I actually kind of liked the other one more, but it wasn't nominated. 
So that's interesting. And I remember when we recorded, we were like, which of those two will get the nomination? So it was the soccer there league. There we go. Yeah. Uh, Tim Memory's round eight volley, the one where he did like the, the super the high, high kick, kick yeah. that ended oh, up being punched. That was amazing. Fantastic. Uh, Josh Dacos in round 10, the ridiculous sort of hand pass around the bloke on the, the boundary line and then the check side from 35. Unfortunately, I didn't see that game because it's when I was at work. It was one of those pesky 2 p.m. games in WA time. But I did see the highlight and late game situation super. basically sealed the win for them. Yep. So, and Dacos, of course, you know, great yeah. DNA, great De- footy, <laughs> footy DNA. Definitely. Yep. He's had some uh, several highlights this season, he actually. He has, he yeah. has. Um, and then the last one for me was Brent Daniels, round 17, the ridiculous dribbler from the, the boundary line from 35 out. That's the winner for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. I mean, yep. these goals are all amazing, but that little, the little flick the up The little first, touch, yeah. And, and you can miss that if you haven't seen all the angles, but that little touch is what gets him over the yeah. line. And then that ridiculous bend. It was like watching, the wrong, watching yeah. a left-arm Chinaman, like, yeah. A, oh, yeah, like, yeah. like yep. a Michael Bevan or something yep. like that. So, yep. Now, I refuse to acknowledge Paddy Cripps' goal from round 17 because he ran too far, <laughs> and Christian Petrarca's goal in round 14 because it was probably touched on the line. Oh, so. There were better ones anyway. Yeah. Uh, mark of the year? Yeah, so sure. I've, I've got my five. So Charlie Cameron's massive hanger in round four. Tom Barras had a, a really nice one against the Swans in round five, going over the top of... Who was it? it was, uh, I think it might have been Will Haywood from memory. It might but... have, oh, the, the Brownlow medal fan, yeah. of course. How could I forget? Uh, Shane McAdam from Adelaide got a really nice hang in round 11. Easton Wood in round 12 was up a... That's the winner for me. Mile. Easton Wood's uh, the winner. Bobby Hill in round 16. So... I'm actually going Bobby Hill. I really like the fact he got a nice leap off a of Ruckman, huge spring off, really clean hands, and in the Indigenous jersey that he designed. Just perfect. Yeah, but, well, that's cool. But that's you're very, very, cool. very welcome to uh, to obviously go a different direction. You- yeah, Eastern Wood for me with Charlie Cameron a close second, I think. That, okay. that, mark, that hanger on Adelaide. And funnily enough, a lot of the hangers were taken against Adelaide. Did you notice that? It was crazy. I didn't notice that, actually. And I just want to give a very special mention to Charlie Dixon for his one-hander in round 17. <laughs> yes. It actually reminded me a little bit of that famous Odell Beckham Jr. grab. Ah, interesting. Where he's interesting. a long way back. Ah, cross code, yeah. I like. Yeah, very good. So that one, for me, in terms of the non-traditional, non-specky sort of style, I think that was an absolute crack. Yeah, the, uh, the, the one-hander, the full forward. Yeah, I, I, I love Charlie Dixon. I, I'm very tempted to pick Port. I really love this Port team. And then I guess a couple of memorable games throughout the season. And the reason I chose memorable rather than best is because obviously we didn't watch each and every single one of them. Speak for yourself. (laughs) No, no. But the ones that kind of stick out to me are GWS Collingwood, round four. GWS won by two. Uh, Another Collingwood won the following week, actually. Collingwood Essendon, where Mm. Collingwood came out absolutely firing. and, And I remember listening to it on the radio driving home from work and the commentators were like, oh... Essendon have no chance. And then they came back and won by a couple of goals. Freo Brisbane was a decent game. All my memorable ones are early in the season. I guess I did watch more earlier in the season, but I did watch at least a few games. Yeah. Freo Carlton was a good one and a bit controversial. No, no it wasn't. That was ruined. Yeah, ruined. Carlton Port was one I didn't see. Yeah, Carlton Port was probably the one that I had, and probably the West Coast and Geelong game as oh, well. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw bits of that. That was yeah. an absolute cracker of a game. Just ebbs and flows. Looked like both teams really probably should have won that game. So they're probably the two that I had. Don't ask me what rounds they were. I know the Geelong game was like round eight or nine-ish, but... Round nine. Good there pick. Go. There you go. Did yeah. Well. Uh, but yeah, that, those are probably the ones that jump out to me. Port Carlton was round seven, uh, where the Port had that kick after the siren. Yeah, Robbie Gray, that was a... Yeah, so, so, yeah, but it was, it was an entertaining season. There and been let's, some great games. 
But let's get into the final, shall we? Let's do some tips. So on Thursday, we've got the Power and the Cats. The Power finished top, the Cats finished fourth. Geelong won the head-to-head with a whopping 60-point win in round 12. The Power were our biggest risers from last season after finishing 10th on 11-11, as I mentioned when we were talking about Kenny Hinckley. They come into the finals with great form, having won their last five and seven of their last eight. The Cats, on the other hand, now they, of course, lost to the eventual Premier's Richmond in the grand final last year, and they finished top of the table last year, which I actually forgot about. Mm. But they come into the finals in similarly good form on paper, mm. having won seven of their last eight. However... Paper only, though. Yes, that's right. However, that one loss was in round 17 to Richmond, and they needed an absolute miracle to escape a draw or worse against my Swans last week in round 18. Thank you, Blixarves, and that smother. Yeah, look, I've got Port winning this by 25. The Cats are not playing great footy right now. Port are, and I'll tell you what, they are going to be pissed about the hiding that they got six weeks ago from the Cats. It's plain and simple. I think Port are going to want this more. Yeah, power at home. As I said, I'm really tempted to pick them for the whole thing. I love this Port team. I'll pick the power by 14. Mm, On Friday, we've got Brisbane and Richmond. Brisbane went out in straight sets last season after finishing second. They lost the qualifying final to Richmond and then the semi to GWS, both at home. Now, they've had a chance to play at home a hell of a lot this season. Brisbane come into the finals having won their last 7 and 10 of their last 11. That loss being a 41-point drumming at the hands of Richmond, but who haven't they been up on lately? Richmond, on the other hand, of course, the defending premiers won two of the last three premierships. Yet another team coming into the finals in good form, and it's no surprise that all four of our top four teams are in pretty good form. They won their last six games, two of which were against the Eagles and Cats, so they got a pretty good tune-up heading into the finals. I got Richmond by 14 in this one. Uh, the, the, the Tigers have had probably the hardest draw out of the top four sides in recent weeks. They've passed with flying colours. They're too able to pivot, I guess, depending on their injuries and things like that. They, they've got such a deep list. I think this is going to be the game, though, where accuracy will finally bite the lines in the ass. Yeah, well, you've been talking about it all season, and you definitely convinced me, because once you alerted me to it, as I watched the games, I realised more and more. I'll take Richmond by 21. Okay. But yes, I have Richmond too. And then our bottom four teams, Shuey. So we've got the elimination final games. The winner moves on to play the loser of the previous games we talked about. The loser, there is no tomorrow. The Saints and Bulldogs first up. The Saints finished 9-13 and 13 last season in 14th place. So they've done a little bit better this year to make the finals. They enter the finals in patchy form, having gone 2-3 and three in their last five, though two of those losses were close ones, with a two-point defeat at the hands of Brisbane in round 13 and a three-point loss the following week to Melbourne. Bulldogs, on the other hand, they were 12-10 and 10 last season. They lost the elimination final to GWS. They come into the finals having won five of their last six, that miss being an 11-point loss to Geelong in round 14. It must be said, though, that of those five wins, only one came against an eventual top eight team, a close one to the Eagles. Sorry. Should have been a loss. Sorry to remind you about that one. <laughs> That's all right. That's fine. I've, I've water under the bridge. No, uh, dogs by 22 for me. The, the dogs know what it takes to win finals. The Saints just don't at this stage. One of the big keys for me could actually be the leadership skills of Dan Hanabry. And I, I can't wait to see what he does in this game in terms of making sure the Saints are maybe ready for the onslaught because the dogs are going to bring the pressure. Well, it's funny you mention that because one of my notes here is that Brad Hill and, and Dan Hanabry are two of the only players that have extensive final experience mm. for for the Saints. And for that reason, I will pick the dogs. And Jaron Geary as well. He was in the 2011 side. Okay, but these guys but, have, yeah. you know, Hanabry's won a premiership. Oh, Brad Hill would have won one with Hawthorne yep, too, I think. So, yeah, no, they're, the, they're the really cream of crop. I mean, there are other players with experience, but but um, there's a, there's a lack of experience there. I, I'll, I'll take the dogs on that basis. 
But I don't I don't have the faith in Dan Hanabry that you did. I was not sad at all when he left because I think he's pretty much done, I've got to say. So. Watch him rack up 35 touches. And well, yes. on cue, we'll see. Wouldn't it be great if he did? <laughs> Why not? I, I, look, I don't have anything against him. I, you know, I loved him as a swan and he did great things for us. So all power to him. I hope he does play well. Mm. Uh, the Eagles finished in fifth spot. They were 12-5 and five last season, won an elimination final to Essendon and then lost to Geelong in the semis. The Eagles come into the finals in excellent form, having dropped only two games since round five. They were the top eight teams, though, Richmond by 27 in round 14 and the Dogs by two in round 16, as we just mentioned. The Pies, on the other hand, are in spotty form, going 3-3 three and three in their final six, with a 22-point win over the Gold Coast wedge between an eight-point loss to Brisbane and a 16-point loss to Port in round 18. They do travel okay to Perth, but they will be in quarantine. Keep those tennis rackets away. <laughs> I'm going to say West Coast by 17. I honestly don't have a great feeling about this game. I don't like tipping the Eagles because I hate jinxing them. But <laughs> look, if West Coast get back as many guys as I think they will, and Jordan Degoe doesn't kick at least four or five, this could hopefully end up more like the game we saw in round eight, where we beat them by, what was it, 60, 66 or something like that? It was 111 to 45, so whatever the maths is. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling confident but not confident. Yeah, I'll take the Eagles by... 15. Now, one last thing, Shuri, I forgot to mention before. We do have a couple of Best and Fairest Award winners already. Oh, yeah. And it's really weird because on one hand, Essendon, who Jordan Ridley won, and I think he's only played like 26 games or something. So that's a spectacular effort for mm. him. They announced their Best and Fairest winner while games were still being played in the final round on the Sunday. That's weird. It is weird, isn't it? Yeah. On the other hand, Carlton have decided they're not holding their Best and Fairest until next year when people can actually attend the event. So they might be doing it on the eve of a new season when some of the players will have left and stuff. So that's yeah, a funny one. I don't like that either. Yeah, that's a funny one. I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice sentiment. It's a good want, sentiment, the there, but, but is it pragmatic? You know. Yeah. Uh, and then we have so we have three others: Riley O'Brien, one for Adelaide; Sam Collins, one for Gold Coast. I guess for consistency. And Christian Petrarca, one for Melbourne. Yes. That's not all that surprising. No yeah. Okay. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week came from the Sandful W in Adelaide. It's a bloody hell with a bit of a, a few sort of moment, and not F-E-W, a P-H-E-W. So um, Adelaide Crows midfielder Anne Hatch had played her first game for the club in June and had 42 touches as part of a 77-point win. Massive. But when they announced the winner of the best and fairer, she was just three votes shy of the winner. And interestingly, in that game, she'd worn long sleeves. Mm-hmm. And the three votes from that game went to Alex Fittridge who amassed a whopping three possessions. A vote per touch? And was also wearing long sleeves. Ah, so I think you can figure out what's happened the there. The plot thickens. So the Sandful investigated, they've rectified the issue, and they've awarded her a joint best and fairest, which I think is absolutely fantastic. So for that sort of stuff up and subsequent correction, bloody hell, phew! Well, it's nice to have a good bloody hell every now and then. But we've had a few instances of mistaken identity in sport. So I... I mean, we could probably run an entire special on on these sorts of things. There's so many of them. But I wanted to highlight a few of them that were particularly interesting. So in 2014, Arsenal's Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain pushed a shot around the post with his hands. You can't do that. (laughs) But Kieran Gibbs was the man that was sent off, even after Oxlade-Chamberlain actually told the referee that it was him. (laughs) Wow. So he put his hand up and was like, hey, my bad, Like it was me, don't send him off. And the, But the referee sent him off still, so it's crazy. Um, speaking of soccer, going back to the 2006 FIFA World Cup, Josip Simonic of Croatia was given a yellow card 60 minutes in. And that was a game against Australia, actually. And the second in the 89th minute. 
Remarkably, though, the referee didn't realise it was his second and let him play on. Oh, dear. He was finally sent off in the last minute of the match, but you know, gave the Croatians an extra play that they shouldn't have had. Mm. He actually remains the only player in international football to receive three yellow cards in one match. Oh, there you go. Mm. Now, we still the- made the quarterfinals, and we lost the eventual champion in Italy, if I'm not mistaken. <sighs> the dive. The dive. Oh, yeah, okay. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I will never get over that one. I'm sorry. Yeah. In boxing in 2014, Indian Manoj Kumar was left off the final list for the Arjuna Award, which was a sports scholarship for outstanding achievement on an international level in India. He was excluded because the committee mistook him for another boxer of the same name who had been suspended for doping charges. Oh, dear. He appealed, but they still didn't put him on the list. Wow. Oh, dear. That's terrible. It is. Um, and as I said, I could literally go on with these for hours, but I've got a golfing one to wrap it up. So a while back, golfer Lee Trevino. Now, this is a guy who's won six majors. He's a member of the Golfing Hall of Fame. He was tending to something in his lawn with a shovel, and a woman driving by in a white Cadillac stopped and said, Young man, do you speak English? I don't know why she has a moderate English accent. Oh, why not? Run um, with it. Yes, ma'am, he replied. What can I do for you? The woman then asked Trevino how much he was being paid for his landscaping services, (laughs) to which he replied, The lady in this house lets me sleep with her. Uh, bloody hell. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. So we'll head into the basketball, shall we? Yeah, let's get it on. We have our finalists now. We do. So we'll finish up with the conference finals. Let's start with the East. In game four, Miami 112, Boston 109. This was the Tyler Hero game, and uh, I think our episode will be appropriately named as a result. Has to be. He had a whopping 37 points. Jason Tatum had 28 for the losers. In game five... Boston got a win, 121 to Miami, 108, making the series 3-2. Jason Tatum had 31 in that one. And then finally today, and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I might watch it tonight. Miami, 125, defeating Boston, 113, winning the series 4-2. Bam Adebayo had a big one this time with 32 points. All right, I've got to apologise. I've got a lot of stuff to say on this series. Go on, it's the conference finals, so, so much. So... Starting off, obviously, Miami wins the series 4-2. This did not go the way I or many people thought it would go. I respect the Heat so much for what they've done in the playoffs. Oh, absolutely. so well coached. They've got great leaders. Their defense is superb. They tick most of the boxes. Boston just backed away from the fight, though. It was really weird. So I have a whole new appreciation for Eric Spolstra as a coach. Yeah. Uh, No matter what happens in the final, even if they get swept in the finals... Great coach. He'll no longer be the guy who rode Dwayne Wade and LeBron James and Chris Bosch's coattails, right. which yep. is which is good. So, Absolutely. So yeah, we left this at two one last week, and we kind of thought Boston were right there, but in Game Four they just went back to exactly what got them in trouble earlier in the series. They were shooting too many threes. They took forty three pointers instead of attacking the rim. So if you look at the points in the paint in Game Three, it was sixty. They only had thirty eight in Game Four. Boston had their fewest first half points this postseason, and the result was the first halftime lead this series for the Heat. Tatum actually scored his first points halfway through the third quarter, but then had 28 from there on 10 to 16 from the field. Tyler yeah, had... it was it was one of the worst 28-point games you'll see, wasn't it? it? Was. He did not play very well at all. And the commentators were saying that he looked out of sorts and that he wasn't moving properly. I didn't actually see that, but mm. he definitely didn't play well. I yeah, don't know if they were trying to make excuses for his yeah, play. Yeah, I but... didn't see it. But... Yeah. but no, obviously, yeah, you said Tyler Hero, he was... Absolutely the guy in this. So 17 points in the fourth quarter, 37 for the game. It's actually his career high for pros and college. But yeah, he broke Dwayne Wade's previous Heat rookie record of 27. The last and only other time a 20-year-old in the NBA has had 37 or more. Magic Johnson with a 40. Magic Johnson in 42 in Game 6 of the 1980 Finals. And he only did that because Kareem hurt his ankle earlier in the series and couldn't play. Which led to, of course, the famous Magic Play Center game. Exactly. Yeah. 
So his 37 is also tied for the fifth most points off the bench in the playoffs since 1971. I couldn't find a full list, but I know that Thurl Bailey, Nick Van Exel, and Steph Curry was actually okay. on that list because he was coming back from an injury. Uh. And while looking at that, I actually found out that in... A nine, you remember the 1993 Orlando-New Jersey game where Shaq ripped the backboard out? Of course. So Nick Anderson actually scored 50 points off the bench in that game in 33 minutes. Holy shit. Yeah. I don't know how that wasn't on our craziest 50-point game list that I did a few weeks back. Holy shit. So he actually outscored the Orlando starters by himself. I mean, he was a good player, but wow. Yeah. Look, Shaq only had 10 and 5 in that game. But, wow. but yeah, Orlando's bench actually scored 71 in that game, which is not surprising. When do you get 50 from one block? Yeah. But yeah, anyway, back to Hero. He's unflappable. I can't wait to see him perform in the finals. Now, game five, that was a bit well, of a. Well, sorry, if I may, yeah. in game four, there was some weird. The, the game ended really weirdly. Boston were in it till the, nearly the bitter end, till they were kind of hanging about. You kind of felt like Miami were letting them kind of hang around a little bit. There was some weird umpiring review going on you know one led to a jump ball that shouldn't have been a jump ball like just make a decision guys do we want to get involved with the umpiring oh well yeah but yeah funny funny finish to that game Mm. weird so game five that was a real turn up for the book so the heat actually jumped out to a lead and then lost it which is not something that's happened very often but yeah boston missed 11 of their first 12 shots Mm. and you know what in the first five minutes of game five duncan robinson i mean he went off well can i tell you my note Go for it. Duncan Robinson came out with his best Tyler Hero impersonation in the first quarter. Ah, he did. He yeah. did. Yep. Do you know he actually took more two-point shots in the first five minutes of that game than he had in the first four games combined? Mm. So he had two two-point field goals. So 31 of his 32 field goals. And Stan Van Gundy would not shut up about it as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, It was it. funny. It was funny. Yeah. So yeah, 31 of 32 in the first four games were from three from him, which is pretty nuts. But yeah, the Heat just came out and smoked the Celtics early. And the Celtics were looking really tight. As you mentioned, they missed a lot of their, their shots. They weren't executing. They were throwing horrible passes. Five of 20 from the field in the first quarter in an elimination game. But they steadied. I mean, they were still down seven at the half, but the championship quarter was where it was won, and 41 to 25, and they had separate 13 and 7-0 runs to turn a nine-point deficit into a nine-point lead at the last change. And well, it's got to be said, although the Heat were winning and they started really well, you did feel like Boston were in for the fight and probably you know had a well, bloody one good of the shot. few times they actually did fight. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. But a couple of key things from that: Miami seven of 36 from deep from 19% compared to 12 for 38 from the Celtics, which is much better. And the Celtics went back to the paint. 56 points they scored there. So in the four losses, Miami were plus 20 in the paint. In the two wins for uh, for the Celtics, they were plus 32. Yeah, not a surprise. So The third the third quarter was really entertaining. Tatum had 17 points. Dragic had 11 for himself and basically kept them in the game, it's got to be said. Mm. Uh, and the other interesting thing in the third, all 10 starters, so both starters on both teams had double figures in scoring with three minutes 30 left in the third quarter. Hmm. Don't see that very often. It's pretty rare. Yeah. Now, game six, that was an absolute beauty. Let's let's call it what it was. Well, yeah, I've only I've only seen the score, really. You'll enjoy it, trust me. Okay. Bam Adebayo just tore Boston apart. Like, when the game was there to be taken. So he had 32 points, 14 rebounds, five assists. It might be the best game he's played as a member of the Heat, quite frankly. He was just squaring Daniel Tice up and getting past him on the dribble for dunks, setting Jimmy Butler up inside. He played like a man amongst boys pretty late in that game. So the Heat went on a 26-6 run over 6 minutes 35. And we actually probably have to give some props to Andre Iguodala. I know we've rubbished him a little bit over the, the course of the season, but 
he was brilliant. 15 points, a perfect 5 of 5 from the field and 4 of 4 from deep. He was a plus 20 in 28 minutes. What I found, he's been very inconsistent. So he has these patches where he plays spectacularly well. He'll throw a great pass. He'll get a key rebound. He'll make a really good closeout. And then he'll do something boneheaded. So he's been very up and down. But uh, well, yeah. he, he only actually had eight points total in the postseason so far wow. up to this game. And there, went you for 15. there you go. There you go. He's actually second in career playoff games for active players behind LeBron. Yeah, well... Which yeah. kind of follows on from your stat the other, the other week about him being... What did you say? He had like 22 conference finals. He went like nearly a decade without making yeah. the playoffs and then all of a sudden he was in the conference finals all the yeah. time. But I mean, he played for Golden State and stuff. So, yeah, true. Yeah. I think what was most interesting to me in this game though was how Boston reacted when they got back in the fourth. And you'll kind of, you'll see this. It was just all desperation threes. So yeah, you're right. down by eight, ten points. Yeah. They're just trying to get it all back in home runs basically. So nothing to the rim. For Miami though, they shot 24.8% on threes in their previous 13 quarters. So absolutely hideous, basically. But they turned it around, 48.1% from three on 13 of 27 today. So the Heat have now led 3-1 in a series 12 times and a 12-0. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah, but, yeah. but they become just the third team from a five-seed or lower to make the finals. So you have the six-seed Houston Rockets in 1995. Which, of course, they won. Which, who won. And then the 1999 New York Knicks, who were an eight-seed. Yep. Who lost, lost to the Spurs. Lost to the Spurs, yep. And a random little stat here as well. Kemba Walker has now been to the playoffs three times in his career. All three times he's been knocked out by the Heat. <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. So the, the Sharks will be circling for him. A lot, of, a lot of people will be saying that he is not living up to his contract. And, and, and look, I've got to say, Gordon Haywood as well. Gordon Haywood was, you know, okay. He was injured. He was injured and he missed the birth of his fourth child, Gordon okay. Jr., Oh, yeah, yeah. But apparently they're going to call him Theo, the middle name. There was all this talk about it during the game. So, look, they're paying a lot of money to Kemba and Haywood. You wonder if they're getting bang for their buck. Granted, okay, Gordon was injured. But, uh, yeah, interesting. Mm, got a lot of money tied up in this team. But, yeah, geez, Kemba Walker must fucking hate Pat Riley. <laughs> <laughs> he must hate him. Oh, dear. Now, I, I probably need to do a bit of a mea culpa on last week when we talked about our choke job. So I talked about that block that Tayshaun Prince did on Reggie Miller. So I then went back and watched it. Now, it was in game two. Now, it was a game, a series-turning block because they stole home court and they only dropped one more game the rest of the series. So it was absolutely series-turning in that sense. But it was really interesting. Like, Reggie didn't slow down as much as I remembered and and the title of the video was something along the lines of greatest ever postseason block dot 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 before LBJ. <laughs> nice. So yeah, and I'm, and I'm guessing Tayshawn Prince's arms weren't 35 feet long, like they probably felt. Uh, definitely the Go Go Gadget arms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And while we're on the topic of that, I have to admit that I was re-listening to the, the recording and I, I made a little bit of a stuff up in the Larry Bird steal. I mentioned that Boston were up by one when it was actually Detroit that were up by one, which is why they needed the steal yes, to win indeed. the game. Yes, so yes. apologies for any eagle-eared... Eagle ear, I like I it. Know. I don't know. Let's let's <laughs> use that one. Yeah, we'll, we'll say eagle eared listeners that may have picked that up. Out west in game three, Denver had a win, one fourteen, defeating the Lakers, one oh six. Jamal Murray with twenty eight, LeBron with thirty in a losing effort. In game four, the Lakers back in the winner's circle, one fourteen, defeating Denver, one oh eight. Anthony Davis had another big game himself. Had a really good series. It's got to be said. Although the rebound numbers were a bit funny. And then finally, in game five, the Lakers won. 117 to 107. LeBron James with 38 points. A spectacular game for him. They close out what feels like a closer than uh, maybe what the scoreline suggests 4 1. 
Yeah, sadly for the Nuggets, this was one 3-1 deficit too many for them. Well, you can only play from behind for so long, can't you? So true, so true. The one thing I will say before I even get into this, though, geez, it would be really interesting to see what would have happened with this series if Davis doesn't hit that game winner in Game 2. Yeah, well, it could have easily been 2-2 heading into into Game 4. Or a couple of different, dare I say, umpiring decisions and the ball moving a couple of different ways. It could have been 3-1 Denver's way. It could have very easily... Avoid the umpiring stuff. Well, uh... no, no. So yeah, a couple of nights after that heartbreak for the Nuggets, obviously with the Davis game winner. Game three started with the Nuggets absolutely flying and they flew out to a massive lead. I kind of want to just fast forward to the fourth quarter though because we've got a lot to talk about with the rest of the series. Mm. With ten and a half minutes left in the game though, the Nuggets led 97-77, so a 20-point lead. And then the Lakers went to a zone and they used a 19-2 run to get back within three. So they got, I think on the offensive end, they got like six shots from point-blank range as part of that. So they were getting Mm. a lot of layups and dunks. But that was just down to Jamal Murray. He hit some big shots down the stretch and the Nuggets hung on. That's that's pretty much all you need to know about that game. Game four, though, was a weird one. So Anthony Davis, as you mentioned, had a huge game. He was on fire. He barely touched the ball down the stretch, though, on offense when it was a close game. It was almost like LeBron heard the chat of people saying, finally, this is AD's team. <laughs> and he wasn't quite ready to give it up. Uh, yes. So Davis had 14 points on six of six shooting in the first quarter. I was a bit confused, though. He didn't take a shot after the 4.23 mark of the quarter all the way up until the 6.24 mark of the second quarter. So nearly sort of 10 or 11 minutes of game time. He didn't play all of them, but it was kind of weird that he wasn't getting touches. A couple of big keys to this game, though. Jokic got into early foul trouble, so Frank Vogel actually put Dwight Howard in. And you mentioned in previous episodes he's been aggressive. Yeah, so game three, actually, to take it back a step. Game three is where Howard went full clown mode on on Jokic and was getting in his face and, and it kind of as each game wore on he got more and more kind of antagonistic and it really kind of peaked in game three but he did a spectacular job drawing fouls on Jokic some of them were bullshit I gotta say but hey a lot of them weren't and Jokic can make silly fouls at times and I'll talk about one in game five actually. yeah well I mean he finished game four with five fouls which obviously is a is a big thing when you're coming down the stretch and you've got five fouls in your head and you kind of know that one more and I'm out of the game. You, yep. you don't play as aggressively. But yep. the other really big key, though, was a 25-6 to 6 discrepancy in second chance points. So the Lakers absolutely dominated that. And just down the, the stretch of this game, the Lakers kind of just held them at arm's length. The Nuggets never got closer than three in the final 10 minutes. And LeBron actually switched on to Jamal Murray, said that he wanted to guard him. And Jamal Murray only had four free throws the rest of the game in sort of like the final six minutes of that. So... That's a really big thing for LeBron to do is is to step up and say, right, I want I want to take this guy. Yep, absolutely. So really, really good. Game five was a bit of an anti-climax of sorts. Um, the Nuggets kind of made it close in the fourth quarter after the Lakers were up by 16, but Jokic was in foul trouble for most of the game. Jamal Murray hurt his leg, and even though he had 19 and 8 assists, he was pretty much a non-factor in the second half. And It was actually purely down to Jeremy Grant and Paul Millsap that the Nuggets were even in striking distance. So... This game kind of was all about LeBron, though. He was just the second Laker with a 30-15-10 game in the playoffs, joining James Worthy, who did it in Game 7 of the 88 Finals against Detroit. Big game, James, all around. Indeed. Yeah, true. I didn't think about that. Um, It also put him just three behind Magic for the most playoff triple-doubles, and you almost feel like he'll get a couple of those in the finals. Jason Kidd, third on the list for those interested. There we go. Far behind, though, it's got to be said. So we've talked about the refs and we've talked about foul trouble and this one wasn't controversial by any means. But Jokic had a foul on the fast break in the first, you know, two minutes into the game. Now they checked if it was clear path. No, it wasn't. 
Actually, it maybe looked like maybe it should have been, to be honest. But that wasn't the point. The point was that he gave away a really cheap foul. You just let him have the layup, man. So he was playing with, with a foul really early in the game. And then, of course, he had two and three really quickly. And so it, it's got to actually be said that he played really well in the limited kind of time that he had at times. You know, he, he made the most of foul trouble. But foul trouble is a curse. And it really swung the series. You know? Yeah, but you made that comment last week as well about Jokic playing well, even though he only played a certain amount yeah, of well, so, yeah. th- so the fact that you're making that comment two weeks in a row, that's a problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And look, maybe he didn't play well enough. He played well, all things considered. Hmm. But both he and Plumlee had three fouls at half time, So they had both bigs. The third started with the Nuggets looking like they were thinking of leaving the bubble. Ali LaForce reported out of halftime that Murray was battling an injury, and you could tell. The bloke just about needed crutches yeah. walking around the court. And then, bang, the, uh, the Nuggets outscored the Lakers 17-7 to in a run late in the third. Murray aptly tied the game up at 84 with free throws on a drive where he clearly looked hobbled by that stage. No, smashed on that one. Yeah, and during those uh, free throws, they actually showed the most playoff minutes this season. So Murray was a clear leader with 710. Second place, Jokic, 664. 664, yeah. Just to put it in a bit of perspective, the teammates they were facing, Davis and James, were on 505 and 485, respectively. So nearly 200 minutes left. Yeah, I think they were like 12th and 13th on the list, so they're not playing anywhere near the minutes. Yeah, well, that sounds about right. Davis hit a three late, and Murray threw up a full-court prayer that nearly, nearly dropped at the end of the third. So going into the fourth, you're thinking, ooh, maybe, maybe Denver can do this again. Do they have yet another one in them? Surely there were more twists and turns to come. Jeremy Grant had 14 in the third for the Nuggets. They, they, however, went on a 7-0 run midway in the fourth, punctuated by a non-charge call on LeBron leading to an Anthony Davis three. It's got to be yeah, said. That was a charge. Yeah, that was bullshit. Uh, and the Nuggets were probably done when Danny Green hit a back-breaking three a few minutes later. And it's funny because literally just before he did it, I thought, Danny Green has done nothing in this game and he's done bugger all this series. And then he hits that back-breaking three pretty much. So, yeah, so it was it was an interesting game. And again, maybe the result doesn't show us as close as it was, but they fought to the bitter end. Hats mm. off to them. Murray is just amazing. It is interesting sort of hearing your takeaways from the game compared to what I'm sort of taking away. Yeah, yeah there's a few things, I guess, from, from this series as a whole, though. I mean, the fourth quarters from Nikola Jokic in games three and four in particular. So across the two games... 0 for 6 from the field. He committed shooting fouls four times, had a few turnovers. He just looked gassed and he kind of drifted out of the games. He was better in game five, but you can't have him taking only six shots across two fourth quarters. Mm. That's He's your franchise player. He mm. needs to be taking way more than that. Yeah, yep. I think the biggest factor, though, that people aren't talking about is Gary Harris. So He was terrible. So let me run you through his stats in this series. 21 total points at 4.2 a game. 7 of 27 from the field at 25.9%. Only 2 of 13 from two-point range. 15.3%. Look, none of that surprises me. If you'd told me it was even less, I would have believed it. He's a 10.4 point per game guy at 42% in the regular season where, look, he shot his twos at about 47%, so 31.9% higher than in this series. He took two free throws all series. Yeah. It's just not the same guy. You can't have this from the third highest paid guy on your team. Mm. Interestingly, behind Jokic and Paul Millsap, whose contract looks utterly hideous for a guy who ranked 138th in the league, tied with Paddy Mills, in scoring. It's got to be said that the difference between Millsap's best and worst was wide, wide chasm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give you three guys who average more points a game than Paul Millsap. Go on. 
Kevin Herter. Okay. Glenn Robinson the third. Okay. And Damian Lee. Yeah. So not exactly big names. No, no. He is in the twilight of his career though. Yeah. And that contract looks worse with every year, of course. Yeah, he's yeah. an he's an unrestricted free agent. You have to think that he'll go because Jamal Murray he'll get an offer somewhere in the vicinity of five years, one hundred and fifty eight million, and you have to sort of. Oh, Murray and Jokic are max guys. Yeah, definitely. You have, you have to probably make room, and, and Millsap yep. will be the guy that goes. Do you know that Murray? I know you mentioned before when we were off air that he was still on his rookie contract. He's the seventh highest paid player on their team. Yeah, well, again, yeah, rookie right. contracts. So, yeah, you have to kind of wonder whether Harris might be on the trade chopping block as well. The other one, of course, is Michael Porter Jr. So he'll be in for a payday. I mean, okay, granted he's a rookie, but he'll be in for a payday in a few seasons too. So they, they will have a bit of a, uh, yeah. And so will Bol Bol. Yes. Mark, mark <laughs> <Yeah>. my words. <laughs> um, can I give you a couple of notes, I guess, to finish this series off? Yes, please. So the Lakers are now 53-0 and this season when they have a lead going into the fourth quarter. The wow. Best record in the shot clock era. Wow which is not surprising when you haven't lost a game. But yep. LeBron's teams are now 15-0 and when they lead a Series 3-1, and 12 of those series were closed out in Game 5. Mm. So, And they say closeout games are the hardest games there are, and we saw, you know, Miami couldn't put Boston away right away. We saw the Clippers fail to do it to Denver thrice. on three occasions. Yeah. Yep. So, so that's a good set. So LeBron's pretty good at it. And I also actually didn't realize that a Lakers championship this year puts them in a tie with the Celtics for the most ever at 17. Oh, there you go. The last time the Celtics didn't exclusively own the top of that list was 1962, when the Celtics and Lakers both had five. Wow. So they have been the force in championships oh, yeah. for a long well, time. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're the glamour teams. Can I ask one question before we move on to our finals predictions? Go for it. Who would you rather have, Tyler Hero or Michael Porter Jr.? Both on rookie contracts. Let's say all things being equal. Let's say they're on the exact same contract. Who would you rather have? Probably Porter Jr., but only because I think he's a little bit more versatile. But then Tyler Hero, as you've said in previous episodes, he's a good passer. He's actually a pretty decent defender as well. Oh, man, that is that is such a good question. Yeah. Well, with... can I break... I'll, I'll break your tie for you. Go for it. For me, Tyler Hero right now, this very moment, all time... I, I suspect Michael Porter Jr. will have a better... Probably will, yeah. Because he rebounds spectacularly well, too. He, does, very, he bobbed up with athletic. a few double-figure rebound games. Yep. So if he can play D and, and maybe you know make sure he's playing within the team concept, I think he might have a better career. He could be an all-star in a few years. Yeah, I think both of them could. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, Stewie, we have our finalists. It's kind of timed out perfectly for our episode. We can actually make a prediction. We didn't have to predict kind of four different potential series, for example, which it was looking like might be a possibility a couple of days ago. The Heat and the Lakers, who you got? Well, look, I'm hoping the Heat make me look silly here, and I almost hate myself for doubting them after what they've achieved this year, but I don't see how they're going to defend LeBron in A-Day. You've got to figure Jimmy Butler's going to have to be the guy to go to LeBron, and Adebayo probably goes to Davis. But I don't see the Lakers blowing the Heat out in any of these games. Miami's a great team defensively, and they've proven they've got weapons to put up huge numbers offensively. It's just it's hard to go past the Lakers. I want to say LA in five and a half games because <laughs> I'm sort of torn between five and six. I think the Heat have probably earned enough respect to give them two, so I'll say in six. Anthony Davis to deny LeBron becoming the first guy to win finals MVP with three different teams. LeBron to be openly pissed about it and, a- <laughs> and AD won't mind because <laughs> he's got his ring. Uh, I think AD will be big, but if the Lakers are going to win, I think LeBron will be MVP. I'll pick him in six. I wouldn't be surprised if the Heat got up. Oh, no. I don't think they will, but their chemistry is excellent. They play a really good zone, and the Lakers don't shoot the three ball well. 
Rondo's actually been shooting it really well, though. So Yeah, because, yeah, playoff Rondo. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's um, such a thing, though, isn't it? Like, guys like Draymond Green can do it. And, and Rondo is as well. Yeah. Well, and even LeBron. I mean, he, he showed glimpses of beast mode in that fifth game. You know, he can take the game by the scruff of the neck whenever he wants, which yeah. is why if they do win, he's MVP for mine. Yeah. But I think Butler might need to step up a little bit more too. The Heat share the load spectacularly well. Dragic is, probably doesn't get the respect he deserves. He he's he's often huge. their top scorer, and he often it's all about Bam and Jimmy. So look, they do have a lot of good players. I think part of it is because Hero and maybe to a lesser extent Robinson are playing better than some people might have thought they would. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to it. In a few days it all tips off and yep. we'll see. Interesting little note to finish this off. Udonis Haslam will have been on all six Miami Heat finals teams dating back to 2006. Ah, very good. Very good. Udonis Haslam for finals MVP. <laughs> He didn't get a minute in this. No, he probably. In fact, I don't think he's had a minute in the playoffs. Get a minute to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of other, I guess, news headlines that we normally do at the top, but we got so excited about the finals. Yeah, the fallout continues from the LA Clippers three. Oh three yes, one loss. do so tell, do tell. I mentioned last week about the spat between Paul George and Montrez Harrell during Game Seven. I read a really interesting article that claims that after the Clippers Game Seven loss to the Nuggets, George tried to give this rousing speech about guys remaining committed, returning to the team this off season, staying ready to make another run. Apparently, this was met with eye rolls and bewilderment, presumably because of how poorly he'd played. Oh dear! Not just in Game Seven as well, but. What comes out of this is Montrez Harrell and Marcus Morris are both unrestricted free agents, and I would not be surprised if at least one, if not both of them, left. Mm. So they don't seem to be on good good terms. And I know we made mention of the Playoff P nickname. I saw something online which I thought was brilliant. They referred to him as Way Off P. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And look, he's come out and said that he's been battling mental health issues. And so I've been less hard on him for that reason. But it's really interesting to see that he doesn't seem to have the respect of his teammates. He does not. Mm-hmm. Coaching carousel, Stewie. Yeah. After we spoke about Billy Donovan not wanting to go to a rebuilding team. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Yeah, he's signed as the new head coach of the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, like why? Why? Why would you? Like, look, I was never a massive fan of Billy in OKC. I thought he had a great season this season, but his reason for leaving makes no sense. His supposed reason, Yeah, yeah. yeah. You go to a team with one guy over the age of 30 and really probably only two significant pieces over the age of 25 in Otto Porter and Thomas Sadoransky. I, I can't take him seriously. Like, no. Good luck with your 30-win team, Billy. Yeah, they must have... 20-win team. Yep, time for OKC to finally get past the first round. <sighs> God. So another thing that's come out fairly recently, Adam Silver has said that next season more than likely won't start until 2021. It was announced probably earlier in the year that the tentative date was December 1st. But it kind of felt a little bit early to me. And, and Well, let's face it, though. The NBA Finals are going to finish in October. Some seasons start in October 31. Mm. So they need a break. They do. They need a break. They do. He did say that they're still looking at a complete 82-game season with standard playoffs and even hopes to actually have arenas with fans, which I think is probably a bit of a long shot at this stage. Well, it depends if a vaccine comes. It's Yeah, nothing will surprise us. Yeah. I'm kind of worried, though, at some stage, the league's almost going to have to either absorb one season to get things realigned to that October-November start or just completely forego things like summer league and preseason games, which that's fine because mm. they're crap. Most yeah, of the time, yeah, yeah. Honest, I never watch preseason. What, what your preference would be that? Get rid of the preseason. Yeah. Oh, look. If we have to, let's have a sixty-game season. If we have to, there has to be a little bit of preseason because you don't want too many injuries. Guys have got to get ready. 
but it's it's just the way of the world, isn't it? We're, we're just navigating our way through this. Nothing. There's there's no perfect situation no, here. Nothing makes sense. Yeah. One last little thing, actually, that did come out in terms of the NBA. Minnesota Timberwolves guard Malik Beasley has been arrested and charged with felony weapons and drug charges in Minneapolis. Oh, dear. This is a real concern. He's like, been playing card games with Gilbert Arena. He, he must have been. Yeah. But this is crazy. Like He was playing really great ball. He was averaging 20 points a game with Minnesota after he got traded. So oh, yeah. He's a very handy player. Amazing. Very handy player. And he player. probably was working towards a pretty nice contract, and he could be looking at jail time if it's mm. a felony. I mean, that's mm. pretty serious. So. Mm. Nuts. Oh, dear. And then finally, Shui, uh, the thing that you're most interested in, the Tasmanian team name. Oh, wow. Oddly, I think the pride was actually growing on me ever so slightly. And we're down to the Jack Jumpers and the Tridents. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if they go with the Jack Jumpers, they will be the laughing stock of the league, no matter how good they are. Um, I did see, though, Hugh Greenwood has officially said he'd love to be a part of the new team. Yes, team. yeah, I saw that as well. He's been listening to our podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the footy basketball code switch, you know, we've had the uh, the Magins and, and uh, Dean Brogan back in the Dean day. Dean Brogan, yeah. Who true. won a premiership with Adelaide 36ers in the basketball and poured in the footy, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, good on him. Hi, Hugh. So, Shui, i got to be honest, the extent of my tennis following in the last week was... Uh, having the Stan Wawrinka, Andy Murray game on in the background while I was watching Game 5 of Lakers Nuggets double screening. What an, an anticlimax that would have been. Well, I, I don't know. I had probably had 99% attention on the basketball and maybe 1% attention occasionally looking at the scoreboard. So I'll let you tee off on the tennis <laughs> and uh, chime in occasionally. Yeah, there's, there's a little bit. I mean, we were going to talk about the Italian Open event last week, but we ran massively over time with the basketball. Nothing new this oh, week. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> but look, with the men's final happening as we're wrapping up, we thought it'd be good to wait until this week to give it a proper wrap-up and have a quick look at the first day of the French Open. So the lead-up to the French took place in Rome. Novak Djokovic recovered from that 2 nothing deficit that I mentioned. You were hopeful. Yeah, he took out the final 7-5-6-3 for his fifth Italian Open crown against Diego Schwartzman, who'd actually knocked off Rafa Nadal and Denis Shapovalov in the, sem- in the semis. A couple of big scalps. Yeah. Djokovic had a first-round bye, only dropped one set in his five matches at the tournament, so a worthy winner, although it didn't stop him from forgetting his mask and complaining about the noise in an empty stadium at various points. Bizarre. What actually excited me, though, was seeing the next generation, certainly at the least clay court contenders, including two Italian guys, an 18-year-old named Lorenzo Musetti and a 19-year-old named Yannick Sinner. So Musetti knocked off Vavrinka and Kei Nishikori in the first two rounds. He looks really aggressive. He's got so much power on his one-hand backhand. He looks really comfy at the net, too. Played some outrageous volleys along the way. Those are two big scalps, too. Two very big scalps. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, Sinner took down Stefano Tsitsipas and Benoit Pera as well on his way to the third round. He doesn't look quite as polished, but he's got really brutal power, especially on his forehand. And when he's on, he looks like he could be a world beater. Kind of almost like a toned-down version of Nick Kyrgios. Oh, yeah, okay. So kind of interesting there. In the women's draw, we had some very interesting moments along the way. Reigning Australian Open champion Sophia Kanin was double bageled by Victoria Azarenka. Oh, dear. So for people who don't know, that's six love, six love. Azarenka's no slouch, of course. She's not, but... Past her time. Yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Amazingly, I saw something on Twitter that said it was the 14th time a Grand Slam winner had been beaten 6-love, six 6-love six in the Open era. I actually had a look at the list, though, and I found another couple, including Roger Federer beating 2004 French Open champion Gaston Gordio in the Masters in 05, 
and Justine Ennen, one of your favourites from back in the day. Oh, only because one of the players would go, when he, was that Marit Safin? Or? <laughs> it it sounded like he'd say her name when he... Probably Gustavo Kurt. Oh, it could have been Kurt. It could have been Kurt. But uh, she beat 2013 Wimbledon champ Marian Bartoli at the 2007 WTA Tour Championship. So the only double bagel in tournament history at the WTA Tour Championships. Mm. Although Bartoli wasn't a Grand Slam winner at the time it happened, so... Um, along the way, we saw a really beautiful moment with Victoria Azarenka beating Daria Kasatkina in the round 16 after she hurt her ankle in a tense tiebreaker. But Azarenka did everything from grabbing ice and towels to consoling her when she broke down after having to retire. She gave her a hug and a kiss, so much for social distancing. <laughs> she actually even packed her bags for her, wow. which I thought was quite impressive. Hmm. The women's final, unfortunately, was a real fizzer, though. Carolina Pliskova took on Simona Halep. Halep actually won the first set 6-love in just 20 minutes, and after three straight breaks to open the second, Pliskova retired, so not exactly what you'd want. But it was Halep's first title in Rome from three attempts. Speaking of the number three, I always find it interesting that so many of these tournaments that lead up to big grand slams are only best of three. Uh, I guess they don't want people to get too fatigued. Yeah, but like, imagine if the AFL played 12-minute quarters in the regular season and then pushed it to 20 in the finals. I know they're doing 16, but they're yeah. not... They're not they're I would have liked if they'd extended back to 20 for the finals, yeah, but true. it never would have happened. It wouldn't have been practical. True. For me, though, the biggest talking points come out of this tournament is the prize money. And yeah, this is crazy. Parity and pay between the men and women's game has long been a point of discussion. A lot of people argue that in Grand Slams, the men should be paid more because they play five setters. But others just simply say that the length of the match is irrelevant and equal pay is pretty much necessary, which is kind of where I'm at. And i got to say, I know you bag Serena Williams a lot, but she did a hell of a lot for that movement. She did. Yeah. She did. Now, whatever your stance is, the Grand Slams have gone to pay equality, which I think is brilliant. But the Italian Open has been very laughable about this. They paid Novak Djokovic €205,200 for his win and Simona Halep €205,190. So, for people who aren't great at maths, that's a 10, 10 euro. euro difference. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, it's nothing short of petty. It's it, ridiculous. It is petty. That's a perfect word. Yeah. Yep. But more concerning is the rest of the field. So, the final losers are paid the same, so that's good. But the semi final losers, 100,000 for the men, 80,000 for the women. Quarter final, 75,000 to 37,910. Yeah. And so on and so it's forth. Getting wider. All the way down to the first round losers, 21,190 euros for the men. 9,000 for the women. Mm. Now let that sink in. So in a sport where gender pay equality is an issue, a first round loser in the men's earns nearly 10% more than a woman who loses in the third round. Mm. It's disgusting. Knocking on the door of the quarterfinals. Exactly. Like losing in the third round means that unless you retire, you have played at least six sets in the, in the female draw. But if you lose in the first round, at most you're going to be playing three sets because it's a best of three. Yep. So in that instance, the man earns nearly 10% more for playing at best half the tennis that the women do. So you can't even use the equal work, equal pay rubbish on that one. This is 2020. We're better than this. So thank God we're moving to the French Open where there's parity. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of that, things have started in Roland Garros overnight. I made some notes when the draw was released. I noticed some really brutal first-round matchups. Most of them so far have had something of note. So Andy Murray, as you mentioned, took on Stan Wawrinka in the first round. Funnily enough, the last time they played at Roland Garros, they played a massive five-setter that pretty much ruined Murray's hip. Mm. 
And sadly for him, Stan the Man was on fire. He wrapped it up in just over an hour and a half. Was Murray a, a uh, wild card? He was a wild card, yeah. 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 You, got, you do like it when the greats kind of hang around as wild cards. Oh, and definitely. They create those interesting first round matchups, but it wasn't that interesting in the end. No, unfortunately not. Yeah. Well, look, we've seen the 24 seed, Borna Chorich. 25 seed, unfortunately, that's Alex Dimonor, the Aussie. Both knocked out in the first round. And Yannick Sinner, who I mentioned before, the Italian, he actually knocked out the 11 seed, David Goffin. So... That's a pretty cool scalp for him in the first round. Yeah, he's beaten some big names in the last few weeks. He has. No love for Dominic team though. The US Open champion gets Marin Cilic in the first round. He's got a really tough draw. I also like the look of Roberto Bautista Agut versus Richard Gasquet. Uh, John Millman and Pablo Carina Bustan. Probably another 10 matches in the first round for the men's. There's some absolute crackers. So in the women's, I'd actually written down Diana Yastremska versus Daria Gavrilova, the Aussie. Oh yeah, Dasha. Daria actually got up and won it, which was fantastic. I put Johanna Conta versus Coco Goff. So the nine seed in Conta actually got rolled by Coco Goff in the first round. I, there's something about her. Goff's a good player. There's something about her, though. Like, she's not seeded, but she's she's just... Oh, really she's challenged. a future star. Yeah. And the other one I'd actually earmarked was Annette Contevit, who's the 17 seed, versus Caroline Garcia, who's a French woman. I actually I put that down because Garcia... She's not seeded, but she plays the French really well. She actually won the French Open in 2016, and what do you know? She beat her. It was a two-hour, five-minute ripper, and, and Garcia got through. Mixed day for the Aussies, though. As I mentioned, Dimonor got done. Jordan Thompson, uh, Alia Tomlanovic, and Madison Inglis all got knocked out. But Astra Sharma and Gavrilova got through, so a couple of winners. Mixed results. Mixed results. Also nice to see Eugenie Bouchard, the Canadian, back in the winner's circle. Uh, she's had a, a pretty tough couple of years. Often in the news for weird and wonderful Diff- yeah, reasons. For, for, like her, for her dating Going life, on basically. dates with people, <laughs> blind dates with people from Twitter or yeah, something. Yeah, she has a bit of fun with that. The one thing I do like as well, and this comes off something that I mentioned in one of the previous tournaments. Actually, it was at the U.S. Open when uh, when Djok- a couple of weeks ago when Djokovic had his had his own little apartment. It's great to see the tournament will not be allowing players to stay anywhere outside of the two hotels that they've designated. Much to the chagrin of Serena Williams, she actually owns an apartment in Paris, as do obviously a lot of the oh, right. a lot of the French people yeah, as well. Yeah, of course, have yeah, it, so. yeah, yeah, but parody. Exactly, they're making sure that there is parody with that. So, yep. Look, it's off to a great start, and we will see where we're at in a week's time. Plenty more to go there. So obviously, Stewie, in the cricket world, the biggest news was the sudden passing of Dino, which we're all still completely reeling from. But there is some other news to address as well, starting off with the series against Afghanistan being cancelled and some news on the Sheffield Shield restart. Yeah, so the historic test between Australia and Afghanistan, which, which well... We plan on going to at the Wacker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I know I laugh, but yeah, it yeah. would have been historic. Yeah, we, we would have tried to and, go, yeah. And there's also three ODIs against New Zealand that have been postponed until probably 21-22 series. The ones that have already been postponed previously. Yes. So disappointing for us in Perth, as you, as you mentioned. They reckon the test they'll try and replay sometime between now and 2023, so... It may just get cancelled. The test championship window, yeah, they'll squeeze yeah. it in, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And then also, they've announced the first four rounds of the Sheffield Shield will be played exclusively across four grounds in Adelaide. Now, we don't have much more on that at this stage. And also, we're probably running well and truly over time. So. But as far as COVID goes, it was a good venue. I think it's a great call. Yeah, good, good place to be. Yeah. 
In the women's T20Is, now as I say, I missed the first one and I caught only a little bit of the second one. In game one, Australia 6 for 138, they set a decent target. Ash Gardner with 61 of 41 being the pick of the batters there. Divine 3 for 18, the pick of the bowlers for the Kiwis, who managed a score of 121. They lost seven wickets, no one above 33 runs. Megan Schutt did the damage with the ball in this one, 4 for 23. Yeah, look, sensational effort from the Aussie women in the first T20. It was absolutely Ash Gardner's game. I mean, it wasn't really a pitch that offered a whole heap to the batters, so she did very well making a 61. As you said, Sophie Devine was brilliant with the ball with three for 18. She probably was unlucky not to have four or five. Devine and Susie Bates did what they could with the bat, but just far too many dot balls and some really great fielding by the Aussies. Devine, their opener as well, of course. She's a very She's decent a brilliant uh, all-rounder. all-rounder. yeah. Yep. Yep. And as you mentioned, Megan Schutt was brilliant with her four for 23. Her bowling in the death overs was just next level. They just couldn't get her away. In that match, though, Alyssa Healy actually overtook MS Dhoni for the most dismissals by a wicketkeeper in T20Is. Ah, with good not, start. With 92. Very good And she start. also added another two in the second match. Very good. Should we get to it? We can. So the Kiwi scored 128. Uh, again, no big scores. The best was Satterthwaite with 30 off 25. The Aussie bowlers, Kaminsk and Wareham both had threefers. Molyneux had a twofer in pretty good economy. And then uh, Hainsey had a 40 Australia cruising to victory in the 17th over. Yeah, this this was an amazing spin bowling tandem from Georgia Wareham and Sophie Molyneux. They they were superb taking five. And yeah, Delissa Kimmett, she's a very... She's not underrated as such, but she's someone that maybe doesn't get quite the same sort of recognition as a lot of... She bowls one of the the best Yorkers and, and really... Very good stump to stump. Nice wide Yorkers as well, so they're very hard to get away. I think, yeah, you, you saw with the bat, Alyssa Healy, 33 off 17, Beth Mooney, 24 off 21. Who's coming to the Scorchers, by the way? Yes, good to have her. Meg Lanning, 26 off Who 32. Who just left the Scorchers. <laughs> and Rachel Haynes, 40 off 31. So some really good performances by all four of them. The decision to bowl Susie Bates in the fourth over, actually, was probably what backfired and, and probably almost, I wouldn't say cost New Zealand the game, but it really took it away from them. So Alyssa Healy just took to her, hit her for 20 runs off the over, and that kind of ended the game and the series, ultimately. So, good result for the Aussies. And unselfish by Alyssa. She probably could have easily had a 50 not out, but mm. she decided to put the foot down and really go for go for it. Going so, for the bonus point. Yeah, well, no. Which doesn't exist. So, as the NBA and the AFL start to, uh, I guess, diminish in games played, we'll look at the IPL in a bit more detail in the future, but you wanted to talk about a couple of quick games, sure. Yeah, well, we mentioned Smitty, uh, you know, Steve Smith oh, yeah, obviously having knock, a, a yeah. great start. I kind of wanted to look at a couple of things with the, the first week. And so, yeah, in the first game that, that Steve Smith played, it was Rajasthan versus the Chennai Super Kings, and Smith had 69 off 47. Sampson had 74 off 32. He had a 19-ball half-century mm. as part of a 121-run standoff, just 56 balls. 27 off 8 from Joffre Archer down the order as well. So they made 7 for 216. I don't want to go sort of super in-depth with this because I could just rattle off a whole bunch of numbers, but the big thing for me out of this match and a huge talking point actually came from Gautam Gambia, the, the former Indian batsman. He was questioning the decision by MS Dhoni and coach Stephen Fleming to actually leave Dhoni until number seven to come into the, to the match. So he's obviously notorious for, for being a big hitter. He's a guy who can hit multiple sixes off and over. He came in when they needed 103 off just 38. Mm. No one's going to be able to do that, not even Donnie himself. So there was a lot of questioning about why he didn't come in at number four or number five. When you look at some of the guys that, that came in ahead of him, 
it made no sense. He had Sam Curran coming in and, and, and a couple of these other guys who were kind of all rounders. All rounders, yeah. Not, no slouch. No, certainly no But no Donny as well. Exactly. Yeah. So it kind of almost made it look like they weren't trying to win the game. Mm. And that was, I guess, the question was, why are you doing that? I mean, they said that Donny was trying to work his way into the, the series a little bit, but, you know, you had Faf Duplessis in there. Now, he had a, a good knock in terms of what he made. I think he made 72 off 37, but... He was struggling. He was only 17 off 18 at one stage, which tells you about the acceleration that he had at the back end of his inning. If Donny's in there with him at the same time, it kind of makes it a little bit easier on him. And in a series where you're only playing 14 games, you can't really just throw a game away. And hey, blokes like Sam Curran could have steered at home. So if Donny had come in early and had a quick 40 off 25 or something, even even if he lost his wicket... There are blokes that would have been capable to steer at home with the run rate a little bit less required rather than him having to go in needing 12 and over or something. Mm. And it kind of sends a message to teams that are playing Chennai, mate, 200 plus, and you're probably going to win the game. They won't really chase it down. So one of the other games, though, that did really, really jump out to me was the Rajasthan Royals and the Kings 11 Punjab from overnight. So Kings 11 Punjab made two for 223 off their 20 overs, which is an absolutely amazing total. Yeah. And it got chased down with three balls to yeah, spare. Wow, wow. So some some key numbers from this. Mayanka Garwal made 106 off 50, which is just insane. Nicholas Puran made 25 off 8 and took one of the most amazing catches as he was diving over the rope and ended up having to throw it back. Oh, that was just remarkable. Probably the greatest bit of fielding you'll ever see. It, it may well be. It may well be. I was almost speechless. In fact, all I could manage was, I think, wow, wow, which, funnily enough, ended up being the commentary. I think it was KP in the commentary, was it? It was Kevin Pearson. Going, wow, wow. It's just, you've got to get your hand on that footage. It is absolutely astonishing. It is nuts. Yeah. Amazingly, though, the the best bowler in this was was Ankit Rajput, who had his, his four overs go for one for 39. Mm. That was the best. He was the only guy that had an economy rate under 10. Less than 10, yeah. For the Royals, though, Steve Smith had a quick-fire 50 off 27, as we mentioned. Josh Butler, 4 off 7. Oh, no. Amazing. Oh. But no, Sanju Sampson again, 85 off 42. He's having a great start to the, the tournament. And Rahul Tawaisha had 53 off 31, including five sixes off the one over. Yes, I did see that, yeah. From Sheldon Cottrell. Mm. So Cottrell went for 52 off his three overs. It was just an absolute assault. On all of these, Joffrey Archer had 13 off three. He kind of exploded into the limelight as a short form 2020 player, didn't he, Joffrey? So it's not surprising to see him do well. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at his two combined matches, though, I mean, he's got 40 runs off 11 balls. Yeah, he can hit a long ball. So, if you put it in the slot for him, he'll hit it straight over so your head. It's going well. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more of this tournament as it, as it goes by. Mm, it started off mm, with a bang. Absolutely. Well, Shui, another marathon effort once again. What are you amped for? First week of AFL finals, it should be an absolute cracker. I'm not willing to jinx any of the games by naming them, though. (laughs) So what I'm going to do, because I have to probably choose something, we're going to go with the Sunday clash between the Rajasthan Royals and the Royal Challengers Bangalore. Two absolutely stacked squads. Virat Kohli versus Steve Smith. It's a battle of two teams that should go far in the competition. Rajasthan's my team. Come do you, on do you have an IPL team? Well, yeah, the Royals, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I've, I've been on board with them since day one when Warney was their captain. Oh, right. No, so we'll see, I'll I, follow them since the well, first season. No, I'm definitely with them this with season. Cameron and, uh, yeah. It's going to be going to be a cracker. So come on, the Royals in, in that one. How about yourself? Well, I'm going to say what I said last week. The Chiefs and the Ravens. 
because I looked at Monday Night Football and thought, oh yeah, we record on a Monday, Monday Night Football, but I forgot that Monday night in the US is Tuesday morning in Australia. (laughs) So for the second week in a row, I'm amped for the Chiefs and Ravens, and this time I'll actually get to watch it. Go time zones. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes. (laughs) Oh, <laughs>